Let's pray. Father, help us this morning to see Jesus, to see what he has done for us. We've sung about him. We've thought about the sacrifice that he made at the cross. And now as we look to your word, would you help us to see Jesus and how he is the fulfillment of everything that the prophets, the law, the scriptures spoke about. In his name we pray, amen. Well, you have heard me share as we've started this journey that the book of Hebrews is more like a sermon than it is a letter. And if it is a sermon, then today we are moving into the main part of his message. The preacher has told us about the glories of Christ in chapter 1. He's talked about how Jesus is greater than the prophets who spoke and foretold what was to come. He's greater than the angels who are mighty servants of God who go out to do his will and who serve us as his children. He is the eternal son of God who is our great high priest. And he represents us before the Father in heaven. And so in these next nine chapters, the preacher is going to focus on two things. And over those next nine chapters, we are going to be looking at these as well. We are going to look at the person of the high priest and the qualifications that were needed to fulfill that role. And we are going to look at the ministry of the high priest. And we will see how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all that that system represented. The position of a high priest is not as familiar to us as it was to those who were living in that time. The writer of Scripture is addressing those who were Hebrews. They were Jewish believers. They had come to place their faith in Jesus, and they were very familiar with the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, the idea of a high priest who would be their representative. But we are not. And so a little bit of background is good for us as we start. There were four qualifications for a high priest if they were to fill that position. One was that they had to be one with the people, that they needed to be an Israelite. They needed to be someone who was of a certain tribe in order to fulfill this calling and this requirement. But concerning Jesus, what the writer of Scripture will show us is that he needed to be like us. He needed to share in our humanity and identify with us in our weakness. A high priest needed to be faithful in his ministry, just as Moses was faithful in his ministry before God. The role of the high priest, again, is to represent the people. And he did that in his prayers, in the confession of their sin. He did that in the sacrifices that were made on their behalf. He did it in the instruction that he would give in teaching the law, the word of God. Thirdly, he needed to be appointed by God. This was not a position you could take upon yourself. It was not by your choosing, it was by God's choosing. And so the scripture will say of Jesus that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, without beginning, without end. And finally, a high priest needed to be free from sin. Every high priest on the Day of Atonement would come before God and would bring into the temple the blood of a sacrifice that was made for the sins of the people. 
But before he could represent the people, he needed to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He needed to be cleansed of his guilt and shame before he could represent others before God. But the writer of Scripture is going to tell us that this high priest, Jesus, was perfect in every way. And because of his sinless life, he could offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins once for all, and he is done. Now, we could stop there, and I could skip ahead to the end of chapter 10 now, but that'd be kind of like just reading the Cliff's Notes. You know, that's the overview. That's where we're headed. And it is so much richer to be able to dig into these texts to see what is there. And so we're going to look at these four verses today that are really the transition into this main text and what he's going to say. And in this short passage, the writer goes back to show us three things about God's plan for us. Number one, he talks about God's original intention for man. God's original intention. And he begins by saying it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. There was a strand of Judaism that believed that that's the way it was going to be in the future. That angels would rule over God's kingdom. That they would be over the Messiah. That they would be over man. And that they would be the ones who have power and authority like Michael the archangel. But what the writer of scriptures is saying is that that is not true. God's original intention was that this world would be ruled by man. And we see that when we go back in the scriptures. And I want to take you first of all back to Genesis chapter 1. And then we'll also look at the passage that is quoted here. In Genesis chapter 1 we read that God said, Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in that garden, he had given them authority. He gave them dignity, honor, and worth. They were made in the image of God, male and female. They were made to reflect God's glory in this world. They were made to reign over God's kingdom, over all creation. They were made to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And you can think about Adam and Eve, the creature king and the creature queen, who were given dominion and authority over all the earth under the lordship of God. What a privilege! What an honor. What a great responsibility that they were given. The scope of that is amazing. It is staggering. There is nothing that was left out. You can think of Adam when God brought before him all of the different animals, all of the creatures. And Adam was given the privilege and responsibility to name them. And whatever he called them, that was its name. 
And you can think of how, you know, zoologists or people who study uh, botanists, for example, who study plants or zoologists studying animals or things like that, you know, trying to learn all the names of every species, every creature upon the earth would be a difficult task. But to have the intelligence and creativity to be able to name them, and that was its name, and to give them recognition and dignity in that way is pretty amazing. The psalmist testifies to that in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 6, which is the passage that's quoted here. The writer of Hebrews introduces it by saying, well, there is a place where someone has testified. He knows it is from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? You know, he begins by looking at the heavens above. And he said that when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. When you go back to Psalm 8 and you read that, and the picture is this. It's picturing this man, this psalmist, who's on a starry night looking up at the heavens above and just standing in awe of God's creation and how vast and beautiful it is. I was thinking of this fall when we had our men's advance and went up to the Bible camp there. On one of those nights, I went out and I was just looking up at the stars. When you get away from the city lights and you're out there where it is so dark, they were brilliant. And if you let your eyes adjust when you look up, you know, you could see the Milky Way that was there. You could see that white as you look through the center of our galaxy. And to think that we are just one galaxy of millions to billions of stars in the universe, we really don't know. It's more than we could count. And the psalmist is looking at all of that. And he's thinking about the significance of man and he's thinking about the insignificance of man. God, who are we that you would even notice us, that you would care about us? And yet here you have given to man this honor, this great responsibility. If you go to the some of your Bibles there are going to make it very clear that he's talking about mankind. They might use that word. They might use the word people. That they're talking big picture that this is about man. And he is wondering at this. God, how is it that you even know our name? Or you know our needs? What is the son of man that you would care for him? And that word care there is personal care. This would be like a doctor making house calls to see you in your time of need. And sitting down to listen and knowing what it is that's going on in your life and coming alongside to help. He's saying, God, how is it that you can have that kind of personal care and understanding of each of us and our needs and you love us that much? You made us just lower than the angels, yet you have crowned us with honor and glory. God, you are amazing. The preacher of Hebrews is concerned about his flock. He's concerned about these believers who are suffering from persecution. 
He's concerned that they might be discouraged and wonder where is God in the midst of this. He's concerned that they might lose heart and he wants them to be encouraged. And do you understand that this God who made the universe knows you and me and he knows what we are going through. And he comes alongside of us in our time of need to help. Do you see how this same God can help us in our trials and our suffering too? But what happened? That was God's original intent, but what happened? Well, he goes on to tell us that God's original intention was marred by sin. And we see that in the second half of verse 8. He has made this statement that God put everything under his feet. But in putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him Yet at the present, we don't see it that way. We don't see everything subject to him. And go back and think about that. I mean, just think for a moment. If Adam and Eve had not sinned and no one after them had sinned, we'd still be living in a perfect world with perfect harmony between God and man and all of creation. There would be no fear. There'd be no guilt. There'd be no greed, there'd be no power struggles, there'd be no shame. It's hard for us to even imagine that. This past year, I went back and I reread C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. If you haven't read that, um, it can be difficult to read. You need a little help to understand what it's about, but once you do and you understand where he's going, it's a pretty amazing work. And in his second book, Paralandra, This figure, who is a believer named Ransom, goes back to Paralandra, and he is there at the beginning of the world. And what Lewis is trying to picture for us is what it might have been like for Adam and Eve when they were created. And so Ransom goes back there, and he sees this figure. He is in this world, and he meets Eve, the the woman in this case, in this figure, And when he comes, he greets her and he says, I come in peace. And she says, what is peace? No knowledge of conflict, no knowledge of war. How do you define peace without some sort of strife? In her innocence, in her sense of trust, I mean, there's no knowledge of those kind of things. And even Ransom himself writes that after he had been there, For a long period of time, he recognized that in his own heart, he had not had a single thought of guilt or shame in the time that he had been there. What would that be like? I mean, that's the world that we live in. We live in a world where we struggle with those kind of feelings in our heart. You know, did I do enough? Did I say enough? Was that right? Was that good? Or we see what we did or said that wasn't, and we feel guilty, and we go, God, forgive me. Thank you for your patience. We live in a world that is just marred by fear and greed and anger and lust and guilt and shame. That's the human condition. And the writer of Hebrews calls attention to it when he says that at present we do not see everything subject to him. Now there's an understatement, isn't it? This present reality mocks everything that God has said. This reality, this 
fallen world. Man's dominion over the earth was meant to be for the good of all creation. Instead, it's been twisted and abused. We live in a world in which there are tyrants, and there have been brutal dictators, and there has been oppression, there is war, there is famine, there is sickness, there is disease. There are all of these problems that we see out there. We live in a world that has seen growth in technology, yes. We've seen growth in the areas of science and our understanding of the world and medicine and the things that we can do, but we don't have dominion over sickness. We don't have dominion over disease. We can't cure everything. We can't fix all of the problems that are out there. And we wrestle with that, and that pains our heart. I mean, we even look at our environment, and our environment is affected by pollution or exploitation of resources where we have mismanaged God's creation because of greed. And we have seen constant conflict since the beginning of time. Clearly, something has gone wrong in this present world. G.K. Chesterton said, whatever is or is not true about men, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. We are not. That sin has affected us in our heart too. But the good news is that all is not lost. You see, thirdly, he goes on to tell us that God's ultimate intention will be fulfilled. And the scripture points us to the answer in verse 9. And he says it so humbly, yet so powerfully. What does he say in verse 9? He says, but we see Jesus. This is the first time that he uses the name Jesus in the book of Hebrews. And the way it's introduced is, again, is this powerful statement that here was God's intent, here was his plan, we have fallen into sin, our world is messed up, it is not where it will be one day, but we see Jesus. He's our hope. And God's original intention and his ultimate intention will be fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And what the writer of Scripture is going to tell us, again, is that Jesus is that perfect man. He is the eternal Son of God. He's the one who became man. He's the second Adam. And you know that psalm we were reading, Psalm 8, that talks about mankind? It's all about him. It's all about Jesus. That Jesus is that son of man that he was writing about. That Jesus is the one who was made a little lower than the angels when he came to earth and took upon himself our flesh. The writer of Hebrews even chooses to quote from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament rather than the Hebrew, because he wants to make it clear that Jesus was not made less than God. He was made a little lower than the angels for just a little while when he walked this earth. But he is now crowned with glory and honor. And the reason he has been exalted to the Father's right hand is because of the sacrifice that he made for us. He suffered death for us. 
He tasted death in all of its fullness and horribleness when he was crucified on that cross. But he rose again, and he has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. He now sits at the Father's side, and God has put everything under his feet. The author of Hebrews is calling attention here to three key events in the drama of salvation that are found in the life of Christ. He talks about Jesus' incarnation that was in the past. Jesus' exaltation that is present. He reigns in heaven. And thirdly, he talks about Jesus' final victory, which will be in the future. The decisive battle has already been won on the cross, but we don't see that final victory yet until his return. We live in the present. We're awaiting that future event. We live in the present in this tension between the already and the not yet. What has already happened in Christ and what is still to come. The second coming, the new heaven, the new earth, that day when we will be made right fully and enjoy this future kingdom with God our Heavenly Father. We don't see it yet. But one day we will, and in that day, we will reign with him. In the book of Revelation, we read about that, that during the millennium, those who had died as martyrs came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. At the end of Revelation, when the new heaven and the new earth come together, that new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, it says about all of us who have known him, that they will reign with him forever and ever. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. It is to Jesus Christ that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. People don't see that yet. They don't recognize that truth, but that day will come. And that's why in this present age we are doing everything that we can to bring the gospel to people who have not heard, to invite them to place their trust in Christ, to come to know him as their Lord today before it's too late. And we who are his children will reign with him forever and ever. That's amazing. So how does this text help us living in a broken world. I mean, there are times when we can say, okay, I know that in my head, but in my heart, I'm still struggling with what I see in this world. I'm struggling with prayers that aren't answered. I'm struggling when I pray for people and we long to see healing or hope or encouragement come and we wrestle with that or when we love to see some of these brutal dictators overthrown and people being able to live in freedom and peace. And we don't see it that way yet. What do we do? What do we do? Well, I want to share a story that comes from the book, The Jesus Creed by Scott McKnight. And in it, he tells the story of a woman named Margaret Alt. When Margaret was just about to complete her PhD at Duke, something unexpected happened in her life. She fell in love. 
She went on to date a man named Yungu Kim, and the proverbial sparks flew. But almost as quickly as the sparks became a fire, they were doused with water. Yungu informed Margaret that he was HIV positive. And needless to say, Margaret was devastated. In her own words, she said, I just met someone that I liked, and we were definitely not going to live happily ever after. I felt like I had been kicked in the gut by the biggest boot in the world. And still, she and Yungu were married. And in his book, McKnight asked the question many of us would ask, why would anyone invite into the core of their being so much pain? And then he goes on to share the answer as he tells their story. When Margaret was in graduate school at Duke, she and Yungu loved to walk in the Duke Gardens. And so knowledgeable did they become of its plants that they supervised construction of a new project. They walked through each part of the garden. They knew all the plants that were there. They even had names for some of the ducks that were there along the pond and the stream that was there. And in their last spring together, the garden seemed especially beautiful to them. And then Yungu died in the fall, and Margaret returned to the gardens in the spring where a memorial garden of roses was being constructed in his honor. But all during that winter, when she would walk to those gardens, what did she see? She talks about it in a book she wrote called Sing Me to Heaven. She said, where peonies were promised, there were only the dead stumps of last year's stalks. Where daylilies were promised, there were unprepossessing tufts of foliage. Where hostas were promised, there was nothing at all. And yet I know what lushness lay below the surface. Those beds that were so brown and empty and to the unknowing eye so unpromising would be full to bursting in a matter of months. And then she thought, is the whole world like this? Is this what it means to live in expectation, real expectation of the resurrection? Is this not what it means? McKnight said, where did she get the faith to persevere when here her loved one had died so soon? It came out of her relationship with Christ. And this image she had, and I love that image, of these gardens in the winter, in the winter season of our life when it looks like everything is lost and there is nothing that is there at all that is beautiful. The hope of spring is coming. And she knew that that day was going to come when those gardens would be rich and beautiful and overflowing. That's the hope that we have too. We live in this winter season of life where we see glimpses of what that day is going to be like. We see the joy that we have in relationships with one another. We see the answers to prayer that God provides. But this world is not perfect, and there's so much more that we long for in that future day. And one day, it's going to come, and it's going to burst into glorious life. What are we to do when life is hard and the trials are many 
we look to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we remember how much he loves us, that he cares for us, that he understands our needs like a doctor who makes house calls, that he has triumphed over sin and death and that his victory is our victory too. Let's pray. Father, for many of us this week, there have been some tough things. As we have prayed and hoped and waited upon you, we prayed for loved ones. We prayed for healing. We prayed for your grace to be at work in our heart and life. And we have seen answers to prayer. We've seen you work. And we've also seen where the answer is not yet. Not yet. And we wait. God, would you help us to look to Jesus, to trust in you, to have patience, and to look forward to that day when you are going to make all things new. Father, thank you for that hope and the triumph that Jesus has won. In his name we pray, amen. Well, today as we close, I'd ask you to stand for our benediction. At this time, we don't have a final hymn, and then we'll be dismissed. From the book of Hebrews, listen to these words. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, May he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.